0: Hello, and welcome back to the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. This is Joe. Welcome. Before we dive into today's episode, remember to rate, review, and subscribe, or if you get your podcast or you're listening, we would love to hear from you. And those reviews really help share us with the rest of the world so we can find more listeners just like you. If you want to follow us on social media, we're on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. You can find us on our website, ProfessionalBookNerds.com, or you can email ProfessionalBookNerds at Overdrive.com. To send an email our way. With that, let's get into today's interview with Adam Sass. My guest today is making a welcome return to PBN. Last year, we talked about his sophomore novel, The 99 Boyfriends of Micah Summers. His debut YA novel, Surrender Your Sons, was named a Best Book of the Year by Kirkus and Forward Indies, Best First Novel for Young Readers by ALA Booklist, won the Gold Medal for YA Fiction at the Ippy Awards, and was a selection for ALA's Rainbow Booklist for 2022. Micah Summers was named a Best Book of 2022 by Seventeen Magazine and the Children's Book Council, as well as receiving rave-starred reviews from ALA Booklist and the School Library Journal. Here to talk his new book that's Teen Slasher, Scream Meets Clueless, it's Adam Sass. Adam, welcome back. I'm so happy to be here. We're, we're so glad to have you back on the podcast. And of course, to talk about Your Lonely Nights Are Over, could you start us off with uh, telling us a bit about the book?
1: Sure. So, I mean, the quick pitch for this is it's Scream Meets Clueless. It's a teen slasher um, straight out of, uh, you know, I, I guess, you, you like the sort of scream era. I know what you did last summer, Urban Legend, that sort of, you know, that 90s dimension films era. Um, really, really, a really good, strong heyday for slashers. Uh, so, um, but it's a slasher that's really about queer best friendship. Uh, Because my last book, The 99 Boyfriends of Micah Summers, which we talked about, was um, a romantic, you know, like a more traditional gay boy rom-com. I wanted to really, with this one, celebrate and delve into a lot of the intimacy that can be there in um, uh, a queer uh, best friendship between uh, between two uh, queer boys. So this was something that was very important to me to kind of showcase how uh just as important if not more important sometimes those friendships can be uh to your romantic partners um and so we've got these two main characters Deary and cole who have been best friends since the beginning of time and uh this is really where the clueless comp comes in because they're very like gorgeous and popular and like you know everyone's talking about them and and all that but like they're they're really like but like in cl- like like and clueless like Sharon and dion are like Essentially good people. They don't need to go through some big reckoning like the um in Mean Girls. Um, it's a little bit more like people project onto them. And that's really what happens with Ziri and Cole is the rest of the people in the high school's LGBTQ queer club um project a lot of things on and frankly a lot of insecurities onto them. because um, Ziri and Cole are are not dating themselves, uh, and they're not dating anyone, period. In fact, they're just they're in a suburb of Tucson. And they kind of keep just rolling over to Tucson and hooking up with local high school boys there, and and are happy with their lives. And a lot of people in that queer club are like, these these people are bad for the community. Uh, they are toxic. <laughs> um, they, you know, they they are toxic for for all of this. You know, and they, they do all this projection. So we begin the story with this sort of, I guess, war within the within the club. These sort of we have those sort of the rest of the queer club, which Deary and Cole call the flops. <laughs> and because <laughs> there's jealous flops yep. <laughs> and then there's Yuri and cole um and there's a sort of push pull of like how involved can they get into you know the uh, the local uh, high school queer community uh and then into this drama comes a masked killer uh mr sandman who's uh was like the zodiac killer was sort of at large uh, about 50 years ago was never caught or identified nobody knows what happened but one day he just kind of disappeared. Uh and then there's this new like kind of Hulu Netflixy sort of docu-series documenting the Mr. Sandman killings from the 70s and everyone in the school becomes like they get Mr. Sandman fever. And uh but then people from the queer clubs start to become targeted by these notes that used to be left by Mr. Sandman and people are like are these notes real? Are they a prank? Um, is this the old Mr. Sandman from before? Is this a copycat? And uh, as bodies start to pile up, um, because of this projection and because of all of this uh, animosity that the club has built up over a Cole, Deary and Cole find themselves um, essentially being blamed for these crimes and the killer begins to frame them. So that's re- so really like the plot of *Younger* are over. Is uh, these sort of uh, pretty popular boy best friends who are just very annoyed that they have to go solve this uh, murder spree because if they don't, they're going to be blamed uh, or they will be dead themselves. So uh, it's a lo- It's a lot. It's like forty percent humor. I would say it's fifty percent humor, fifty percent scares. Like it's just as much humor as scary.
0: And that is what truly makes it. If you made clueless scream like it's it's exactly that you've got the humor you've got the camp you've got the the slasher and there are just those true crime moments that you're sitting with and you're just going oh this is really happening but that description there are so many things that jump out that I want to go like okay what about this what about this but we'll we'll start easy Uh, what's your favorite scary movie
1: (laughs) oh um so I've had to cycle through this a lot and I have many, one of my favorites, the one that keeps coming to mind when I am asked this question on, on my tour for this book is uh, The Exorcist. Uh, I really love it. Obviously I'm loving that it's coming back. Um, I'm skeptical, but of course, why wouldn't anybody be, you know, (laughs) we're not, you know, no movie is safe right now. Um, and, uh, we got Ellen Burstyn coming back. Ellen Burstyn is so good. And the original exorcist and a big thing of what I love that the exorcist does that I tried to do in new and are over was I love when horror, uh, is about characters who are wrapped up in their own drama before the horror even begins, because that's kind of how it would happen in real life. Like it would be like, You'd be worried about your bank account and your job and something up with your, like, and you got to walk your dog and someone's up with your kid. You'd be wrapped up in a bunch of crap that to you was like, this is, I'm having such a terrible day. Um, and then, you know, and this is what happens to Ellen Burstyn's character is like, she is, her biggest concern is like, she's shooting a movie in Washington, DC. Um, she really can't stand the script. She, she really can't stand being in this movie. Uh, and her ex-husband is, like, forgetting her their daughter's birthday. So she's livid. So she's just, for the first 20 minutes, half an hour at least, like, it's a good chunk of the movie. It's this sort of slow burn when there's sort of ominous things creeping around the corners. She is just, like like, hauling the hotel in Rome where the husband is and rampaging so much so that, like, she doesn't notice that slowly her daughter is, like, acting different until suddenly really unignorable things start happening. Um, And I I think that to me is like really, really effective horror because I think it kind of draws you in to like, it it just makes it feel more real because it's like, then it's like all this demon stuff happens. But like, because we've had 20 to 30 minutes of just normal life and then it slowly kind of is just already there. And then we're off and running with the spinning heads and everything like that. uh, I think that's so effective. And that's kind of what I wanted to do with your only answer over was for the first chapter, you're really kind of in this queer
0: club squabble over. Um, Did you send these texts to, right. you know, exactly. are you doing all this? There's a lot of like petty little, like, well, what
1: I think is and it, it, a lot of interqueer community um, squabbling, which we, I think anybody listening to this podcast is probably very, unfortunately, very well aware of. Um, very calming. It's very calming to be around that energy. Uh, but then, like into that, then comes these slangs, an actual threat. But then, like you have to kind of keep up the. There's there's other things happening, and so it is. It's sort of by the time the threat comes in, you're sort of already in this sort of locked community.
0: Right, they're already having to close up ranks and trying to get over their Hatred's too strong because they are a community. They know they're a community. They know they have to kind of do this together, but their own distaste and dislike and whatever has come before for one another to really move forward. Um, Knowing your writing style and kind of your process, where did your inspiration for Your Lonely Nights Are Over come from?
1: Well, um, so I had a lot of feelings about what I was sort of seeing in queer community you know like well you know being a very online person um and my my husband is not very online and so he's always like very blissfully unaware that all these conversations are happening all the time and and he sees me just like so upset and he's like it's, it's almost like i'm like s- like stirring like like uh it's like i'm stirring rat poison into my coffee like every morning he's like we'll just stop doing that
0: uh, and I'm like, no. um doesn't quite work that way. Yeah, kind of have to know.
1: <laughs> right. I'm like, he's like, well, it's making you weak and ill. Uh, and I'm like, no, well, you know. So, and I was sort of seeing these troubling conversations where, it's, you know, it's, and it seems to always crop up around, like, when there's a piece of media or there's really anything. I, I feel like there's, the queer community and I have a complicated relationship where right, I feel, where I love us so much, but then I feel like, we are so prone to just descending just so quickly into squabbles over, I don't want to say nothing, but just it gets very small very quickly. Right. It gets nitpicky. It gets nitpicky very quickly. Um and you lose, you lose the forest for the trees very quickly, I think, sometimes, especially online. Because then there's some people that I have had like conversations with online where I feel like I'm talking to a brick wall, and then I will see them in person. And they're far more like there's a little more of an exchange of emotion. And I feel like I'm talking to a real person. And I think in, in general, I don't think that's a queer problem. I think that's like a literally an online problem place so where it's like, like, you can't just like be like, oh, I, I wasn't a fan of that movie. It's, there's like a big, you not liking a movie says something about you. I and mean, you liking a movie says something about you. It's a very like intense thing that can escalate so quickly. And so that I was sort of fascinated by those dynamics. Because um, I had just finished. So I was working on my debut. I was working on selling my debut, Surrender Your Sons, which is it's a, it's about a, a group of a dozen teens, a queer teens, who are uh, to escape from this conversion therapy camp. Um, It's a, sort of an adventure thriller. Really loved all those kids. And sort of the arc of that book really is all these sort of individual siloed kids learning to kind of come together and form a community and so I sort of almost like while I was waiting for this book to sell, I almost wanted to write the sort of dark twin of that, which is how the community can sort of, you know, like the the dark side of that, like how it's not necessarily because someone is queer, they've got your back uh, and you can, and you can drop your guard around them.
0: You know? Right. That you also have to be a little more mindful of the the family that you're finding in the community you're creating, because, we're not great alone, but we also have to be protective of our peace in a unit.
1: Exactly. And I think it's also important um, to remember that, like, especially, you know, it's very hard. And this is something that online stuff really escalates, which is like individual choices. Um, and I think this particularly re- pertains to like relationship choices. There are people who are, there are queers who are like in, Open relationships. There are queers who are in, like, um, uh, you know, polyamorous relationships. There are people who are like, I choose not to be in a relationship. I am just going to. I'm single, and I am, um, you know, and I am uh, hooking up with other people, but that's it. And as long as it's being done consensually and um, with enthusiastic support, and no one's getting hurt, like in the and it, it's it just feels like this shouldn't be anyone else's business. Just focus on your thing. And I've just been noticing a lot of queer people just really not minding their business um, on on this thing, which is which is weird because it's sort of out of the conservative hand-wringing playbook. Um and I found that very troubling. And and I and I noticed younger generations doing this. And so I found that to be equally troubling. So this was this book was sort of an outgrowth of that where right? I just saw like how.
0: You know, and it's not necessarily
1: blaming like a young generation or blaming a certain mentality. It is really like it shows like how when you're very online and or when you're in a closed community with that with that allows very little uh, air into the room, how you can get really siloed off even within the community, how you can get really like ingrained in your own thinking um, and I don't mean just—I don't mean like politically. I just mean like—I I mean like you know how like someone living how someone is living their life, and what exactly that means. So I'm, yeah, I'm seeing a lot of not no business minding,
0: um, which your your characters definitely do that in this book when it comes to Cole and Deary. That right,
1: nobody minds their business. So like I'm a millennial, and I feel like the last. I feel like I was the last generation to really grow up like Um, And I feel like this is sort of a, an, an unintentional outgrowth of like, there's ring doorbell cameras, every, like there's just cameras, 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 cameras. Um, and, you know, your whole youth is online and sort of, there's a lot of like, there's sort of an, uh, an ease of getting into someone's information um because it's so available and to 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 you know to someone who kind of grew up with like internet being just for looking up goosebumps facts like in the mid-90s like i feel i don't know like i yeah um it seems a little wild to me that we're like using it to like figure out people's whole identities and deals and paint their whole situations of their whole lives and it and, and just and it creates more projection than you think you know this person and that's a big part of the killer which is the mr sandman um which relates to the title your lonely nights are over that's a message he will leave on the body after after he's killed them. he his mo is he kills uh lonely people if you have been uh, recently dumped if you are chronically single if you're pining over someone you can't have Um, if Mr. Salmon decides you are lonely um, you could be the next to go and um, what this kind of book investigates about that is who decides who's lonely and there's a lot of projection in that because I think a lot of people can have lonely moments but I think some people and maybe even us sometimes can go like can you know look at somebody we don't know and go like oh that's that's a shame that, you know like i feel like they're really lonely or something like that um but like we don't know maybe they're like happy with that or maybe maybe they're not maybe their life isn't like as tragic as we are like projecting onto them um and that's really what the killer does which is like they're consumed with this feeling of this person um is unbearably lonely and i have to
0: put them out of their misery and it's like, who decides? Right. Yeah. All based off yeah. of truly no criteria that anyone can judge. But speaking of Mr. Sandman, how did you go about crafting a killer? I mean, you had to make a kill style, this motive, um, even all the details of like appearance overall, and then catchphrases, you know, kind of like those those key marks of, was this a Mr. Sandman crime? How did you go about this?
1: I knew like certain things had to be unique because we knew, you know, because because of the Scream Comp, um, screams are who um it, They're essentially Agatha Christie stories. Um, it's Sure, like I mean, they're like the, the killer is someone you have just seen on screen. Like they're like it's not a otherworldly entity like a Freddy or a Jason or a Michael Myers. It's not this like being. It is someone we have met. It's someone we have met um just a person if they ever mess with this format i'll be so upset um the second we get like a supernatural who's behind the mask thing i'm just gonna be like i'm
0: out right and scream 15 is where i stop
1: <laughs> <laughs> i will keep watching but i'll be frowning about
0: it. i won't be happy about it but i'm <laughs>
1: <laughs> so because it was i was going to be a mask killer the mask had to be me. uh so i was like going through and i was i was really tearing through like a lot of like old movies just making sure I was like, because I had in my mind, like, here's what I'd like to do. And it was, uh, so Mr. Sandman wears a theatrical tragedy mask, the old drama mask. Um, and I, you know, it's it's it, it, it's close, but not really that close to the sort of screen, sort of dipping ghost face. Yeah. But it has its own style. In fact, it's a little, um, there's a Twilight Zone episode called The Masks, where one of them is a sort of permanent frown. And it just really felt very like appropriate for Mr. Salmon, who's just like about loneliness and sadness and all of that. So I was, so I just tore forever. I was like, is there something where the guy wears a mask? That's the tragedy man. Because um, there's been a million flashers. So so far, I'm sure someone's gonna
0: someone will let you know online. Someone, yeah.
1: someone <laughs> let me know. But yeah, but <laughs> to my knowledge, this was this was not used yet. Um, and then I, as for the the as for the killing style, I knew that because these were this is the dual POV between Deary and Cole uh, first person, a lot of these kills were going to have to be for the first half of the book, at least the kills were going to have to be like off page. And you, it was a lot of like discovery of bodies um, versus like towards the back half where you start seeing a lot more like on page, Mr. Sandman killings. Um, and it's, it's sort of like Jaws in that way. We're sort of going to slowly build up. You sort of see this wreckage and then, you get to that moment. So I was like, okay, well, if we're gonna be finding bodies, you know, if it's a if it's a if it's a scream, if it's a knife, then it's you're just gonna have like various stab and that doesn't, I don't know, you know, like was it didn't seem dramatic enough. You know, I was and then I loved the idea of um, you know, it was like watching Clue one night, like and it was um Yvette, the maid and she gets like strangled with the with the rope. And like she's sort of like laying across the billiard table in this very architected way. Um, that Colleen Camp, the actress, is, is sort of laid across the table, sort of holding the rope. And I just thought it was a very dramatic, like, it was, vi- like, because we're talking about like, sort of a queer, th- this villain is sort of in a queer space, and so, like, there is going to be a little bit of a grandness, there's gonna a little showiness to it's a kid. Gotta have night.
0: some drama, yeah.
1: Exactly. <laughs> so there isn't, it's a noose, but it's a noose of razor wire, which is very messed up. It
0: is. <laughs>
1: yeah. It's <that's> very, <laughs> yeah, very nasty. So, yeah, that's how I that's how Mr. Salmon came to be.
0: So you did mention the dual perspective between Deary and Cole. I wanted to talk about what made you decide to write from two perspectives and to kind of set up as the book goes on without spoiling uh, the idea of one of them becoming unreliable uh, through abuse, trauma, all of that, where the other is being set up as unreliable for like just situations of the color of his skin and the expect like the preconceived mm-hmm. notions of police. And uh, if you are a bitchy gay, like, you know, what people are ready to blame you. So how did you decide on two perspectives and that that build?
1: The only Nights Are Over was originally when I, when I sold it, it was called Deary. And it was just originally from his point of view. And then and, and then after a while, my editor, like pretty early on in the process was like, Cole is such a bombastic character he's like jumping off the page and he like has access to a lot like cole is the poirot of this like he's investigating like he's got the investigative skills i feel like you've got like sort of two investigative styles you've got cole is our sort of agatha christie detective who is very analytical and is spotting inconsistencies and and little moments like that and then deary is
0: he's The scream queen, he's the one who's like, I'll use myself truly. as bait,
1: yeah. Yeah, dearie is truly going through this in a very like sort of emotional, intuitive way, like so. Yes, yeah, so you almost like you have these, uh, sort of like traditional, you know, detective story, detective character, and then you have uh, a scream queen who are best friends. And uh, th- like, I the the two perspectives, so she suggested doing two perspectives, my editor. Uh, right away, it was very clear that you were going to get with Cole, you were going to get very Very like sharp-eyed, perceptive. Like you're going to be picking up a lot of clues, a lot of like cold chapters are, and it and it it evenly goes back and forth. You do deary cold, deary cold. Every time you're in a cold chapter, you like pick up on clues. You're collecting evidence essentially as a reader. You're picking up on like behavior patterns and this and that. You have a very analytical experience, Um, uh, and also because like, and you have a really like clear-eyed thing because uh, Cole is. Uh, Latinx. And uh, since they are both being blamed for these crimes, Cole's racial identity, uh, the sort of the eye of the law is uh, far more intense uh, on him. And that stress and strain um, starts to shake apart the the friendship between Deary and Cole um, as the story goes on. It's sort of like, that's the big sort of existential threat. It's not even them going to jail or them dying, it's it's like, will their will their connection as people um, maintain um what can be more harrowings, honestly, sometimes uh if if you feel that connection, Frank. So uh in Cole's chapters, I knew you were gonna get this very clear-eyed, here's what's happening. These people are jealous, these law enforcement people are like, you know, clearly biased. They're biased. Yeah, like and and you and you have these like you're allowed clarity in the cold chapters. Deary's chapters, Deary is far more emotional and 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 Deary, you sort of get lost in these dream spaces, almost to the point where you he might be an unreliable narrator.
0: Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com records.
1: I'm Anne-Marie Kelly. Wild Precious Life is a podcast about dreaming big, digging in and connecting across distance, division, and loss. In each episode, I talk with prize-winning writers, musicians, and
0: wanderers who remind all of us how we can make the most of the time we have. So meet me here. Let's walk and talk and dream and discover what it means to be wild, precious,
1: and brave. Because he has this sort of foggy memory about certain moments that happen And you think maybe, like, he seems to be having gaps of of memory. Uh, You know, he he seems to be sort of not tracking everything that's coming through. Um, He's very concerned about maintaining his connection with Cole. Um, He's very concerned with keeping everyone safe. Beyond that, those are his two primary objectives. So he's got this very emotional um, kind of arc. And Cole is like a tank just going for, like, unmask this per- as soon as we unmask this person everything else can then heal yes uh and Deary is like no let's solve it on the fly
0: i have to fix our friendship and right. get a boyfriend and
1: <laughs> right and so Deary is a little bit of a poor baby who is just kind of a little dr- drift and so you get a lot of the um in in his chapters you get these sort of you know i i really loved writing him sort of beautiful dreamy um pondering and Deary is someone who is depressed and anxious and i think i read somewhere that was um when you have a lot of depression your your sort of mind is is fixated on on the past and then anxiety is your mind is fixated on the on the future uh and what it could be and uh, cole is very present uh, but deary is stuck in both the past and the worrisome future he's very rarely present which is why a lot of his first person um reportage to you, the reader, you know, has to be kind of looked at a little bit askew.
0: It's it's definitely frenetic, but it's really great for the pacing to have these two perspectives of this is my fact finding time. This is my wait, what am I supposed to pull out? Like either way, you have this really fun choose your own adventure experience to try to see if you can figure it out as we like race toward the end. The flip side of this, you have so many characters and you're not afraid to kill your characters in this book, especially. What did it feel like to build all of these people who feel like fully formed humans and then kill them? And how did you decide when, where, all all that? I mean, you knew how they were going to die because killer has an MO, but.
1: It's, It's hard. And I think that's like, it's so funny. Cause I get very like, cause I'm a very emotional person when it comes to like horror and like killing off characters. I get very like, that's the job, buttercup. Um, <laughs> you gotta, they gotta go. We all loved Tatum from scream and she got to get crushed in the garage door. Um, you know, there's a lot of people in these movies where I'm like, Oh, I wish that person had not. I like, I wish Parker Posey's character had survived. I, I think. She's gonna secretly survive that. Um, I mean, hey, they brought back Kirby. They brought Kirby. I think, like, listen, while we're doing the while we're doing the Goofy everybody coming back thing,
0: right? Let's make the most of it. Make her
1: come back. So it was. It was. It's. It's hard, but also like so. A big thing that I knew going into this is I was like, well, swipe so because I had done Surrender Your Sons, which is I was pitching as an adventure thriller from an in a conversion camp, which is heavy topic that I have just pitched to you as zippy adventure. Um, And that's truly because, and it's not because I'm trying to be flippant, it's because I wanted to give all of these kids agency um, and fun agency to have fun, to connect with each other. And I think by the end of Surrender Your Sons, you are seeing like, these characters are laughing and being chummy together. They are getting through one of the most traumatic events they'll ever go through. and they're doing so with with joy and laughter with each other, and that's how that's how you get through it. And um, that's kind of where. And so I knew, though, after the reception of that book, and, and it was well received, but there was a lot of you know, it's it. There was a lot of content warnings because it was it was a very it's an intense subject matter, and I know certain folks had, um, like, oh, I don't know if I'm really ready for like a heavy book right now, or sort of anything where it's like it's it's hard to do queer thrillers at all because you're sort of saying I'm endangering queer lives in this story and when I announced that I was like doing like a queer slasher where like the victims were all members of a queer club you know I, a lot of people were just very excited but like even people who were excited some of them were like so how many queer people die uh horribly in this and I was like
0: a great question. I understand, <laughs> I
1: understand your fears. It's um, not a great time to like, again. It's never a great time to like see a bunch of queer uh, characters get killed. But
0: there's also a lot of great queer victory. So
1: there's a lot of great queer victory. No, exactly. But I was like, my whole thing is, I was like, listen, I have just wanted to put together a slasher that is for the queer community. Um, you know, and Scream is really for the queer community. But you know, it's 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 a it's a big that's a big tent, and we're in that tent this was like this is a just us thing um so i i knew like to counteract that like 95 percent of the characters with major speaking roles in this book are queer um on page clear self-identified so um and so i knew there was going to be so much um identity coverage everywhere that i could start killing and it. it wouldn't be like oh you've killed the one queer person in the story like that's everybody's sort of fear, you know, like, cause it's like you get attached and we've had, we, we've all suffered through decades of, of that where it's like, Oh, there's the one queer character. And then like, Oh, i are not going to maybe make it. And then they get killed. And then maybe another season goes by and they'll brand a new one. And it, it, can, it can, it can, it can, it's, we've been burned. So I really wanted to make sure that right away from the jump, the readers knew from chapter one, where they meet a dozen queer people. Uh that you were gonna be fine. I wanted people to like sort of sit back and get lost in the dream of the book and just have that fun scream adventure and not worry as as much as they could, not worry about like, you know, you know, it's not queer death. This is just a they're not being targeted because they are queer. It's all for a different purpose.
0: Right, that we are not talking a final girl story here. We are talking a a true like teen slasher. It is that -hmm. there can be a group at the end, that it can be more than one person.
1: There are survivors, yes, survivors, yes.
0: There are survivors. (laughs) Now looking at some of that uh, setting and some of our ancillary cast here, we go into, we're in Arizona, as you said, suburb of Tucson. We're kind of mainly in the high school, specifically the music room or the library or the drive-in. Those are kind of like the big places outside of Cole and Deary's houses or, you know, in the Zoom call with everyone else when we're, you know. Yeah. Have fun reading that later, y'all. (laughs) Yeah. First, of course, I have to ask from Overdrive, what inspired you to add a librarian to the cast?
1: Um, oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah, so I knew so I knew the queer club would need like a, a like a teacher figure, like so like a like a classroom sponsor, like a club sponsor, um, who was faculty. And um I thought librarian would be good because again, I really love you know, so like Buffy fans. notice that the geography of this library is very familiar (laughs) um, just a little (laughs) yes your 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 mind can create a a map very easily this way and so i was just kind of picturing like you know oh great like they congregate sort of in a library space this is like a character because that's the thing like where it's like library like libraries are safe spaces librarians are often like one of the safest
0: people around uh, Yeah, people
1: to come to you know when you're queer in in school and so, this was a character who was going to be very instrumental in making the club feel safe. Then um, uh, she's yeah. very quickly in, in over
0: her head. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> very quickly.
1: <laughs> yes, very quickly.
0: And then, thinking about the drive-in, do you do you have a love for a drive-in? I do.
1: Well, I have a I have a love for like so. Like, I wanted this book to kind of feel like
0: both like new and nostalgic.
1: Yes. I wanted to have that sort of like now channeling the 50s. And so this was that's why like a lot of the I think probably most specifically Deerie and Cole um are like almost channeling like 50s teenage cool. Yeah. Cole is like, I've got my jacket and I'm like mad at everybody and like don't touch my hot red car.
0: <laughs> I was gonna say he's about his car. <laughs>
1: he's got he's about his car. Like it's very like it, it's it's very just fifties, and then I I specifically uh, wrote Deary in the first chapter to have like this lavender neckerchief, kind of the one that, um, she wears in uh, Rebel Without a Cause, like a fifties sort of like guys best girl, um, and she's cool, but she's like a little she's like a little you know, he's vaping, you know, like <laughs> and it's it is just like the sort of like. Boney cool, but just like they were channeling a different era. Like they are just like, I wanted Deary and Cole to feel like aliens in this town and within their own community. Like they were just too cool, for, literally too cool for school. That like they were just like, of course they didn't belong in this club. Like they didn't have anything in common with anybody. And everyone was fascinated. Yeah.
0: They had no problem with who they were, who they were trying to be. Like right. they were the kids who already had it together and knew where they were going to go to make their first mistakes, kind of thing.
1: Exactly. So like they're very like again, they just I wanted them to feel like they were like of a different time, of a different place, um, otherworldly.
0: That makes so much sense.
1: Yeah. So we, yeah, from that perspective, uh, in, in you know approach that, and so that's why like the drive, and I was like. Okay, well then we'll have this sort of thing. And there's like sort of a roadside burger thing. And there was all these sort of like especially the di- the the drive in sort of section around the one the one third mark. Um just gets very like, you know, we're playing old fifties sci-fi trailers. You're playing all this sort of like B movie stuff. And um that's that was really the inspiration. Like I was like, you could you could do a lot of that in the fifties. Um, but it's just happening now.
0: Right. It's very timeless, current. It, it has a good tap dance around, you know, kind of what we're looking for. And thinking of that, I know you love your authenticity, writers. How was it to work on, because me trying to understand what kids today are into or doing or what high school is like for them is a scary thought. What was it like creating these characters that you may only relate to in certain portions, you may not relate to at all, you may fully relate to, but how did your work with authenticity writers and planning these different kids out go?
1: Um, So my authenticity writers this time, you know, there was, so there was, I would say, well, first of all, I I do like to keep in touch with uh, the young people. Because uh, a big part you're of brave. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. yes. Um, a big part of the uh, the framing of Deary and Cole involves planting evidence in their locker. Um, and for those listening, if you do not have teenage kids yourself, um, and if you're not a teenager yourself, you should know kids do not go to their lockers anymore. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> the lockers, like their lockers are assigned, but there's just no reason to go. So, like, very... Like, there was
0: a... So, there is a line in that where it was, like... The deer he never hasn't been to his locker in six months.
1: Right. And it just felt so... It's strange. But, like, you know, but, like, it, it does make sense. And, like the more electronic everything gets. But it used to be so, like, you have, you have to, like, live there. And whoever was next to your locker was very important.
0: It mattered so much. <laughs> and having graduated high school in 2011, I could not imagine... Not going to my locker.
1: (laughs) You, you are, you are such a, you are such a, you are such a child. Um, I graduated high school in two thousand one.
0: My sister did too.
1: (laughs) There we go. So I will tell you, like in that day, even like the locker was like, you might as well just have class to your locker. It was a very important location. So to de to like rewire my brain on that was like very interesting. This, um because i had a whole thing where like they went back to the locker, <laughs> it, it very quickly just had to go
0: they went no not how it works i mean it, it makes so much sense though I should have just set the whole thing back
1: in the 50s
0: and just like and been like okay
1: yeah they're all in the 50s and they're all at the lockers and no one is at the
0: and they're all having a sock hop and eh. yeah exactly <laughs> But that's the thing. So without being today, you wouldn't have the chance for this true crime element and those really wonderful interstitials. How did you decide to bring in? Because I, I love a book within a book, a, you know, a podcast in a book, all of that. So this kind of thing of a documentary piece, what was the motivation there? Was this a an always? Was this a later ad? Well, I'm like you. I love an interstitial.
1: I think because I think people need to mark time, especially in a book like this, which is like it's about forty or so chapters. I think it's forty chapters, and it is like I tell people like around if you're if you're reading it for the first time, chapter twenty six is where you should stop for the night because if you proceed, if you have anything to do in the morning, if you like, I I I have heard this from many people. I've told them I'm like stop at twenty six, then you're gonna get to twenty seven. And it just keeps going and you do not get a, like, you are going to be, if you care about these characters at all, you will keep going until you reach 40. So I knew we needed breaths in there. We could not just be like 40 miles of bad road where it was just like, and like, it was just like thing, 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 thing. We needed some, some break in there. And uh, the interstitials were you know, you don't have to twist my arm to do an endostitial, but I, it was always kind of part of it, but I, then, then like I came across the idea of doing this as a docu-series, um, and doing sort of like episode descriptor, like, it's almost like this was like, like on Netflix where it's like that little paragraph you would see maybe a little longer than that for the, for the episode description. And because I knew everybody in the school was going to have Mr. Sandman fever, um, that they, that he was going to have all these rules, like, that this was not going to be a new killer where we had to learn the rules, that this was like a killer from forever ago where a lot of the characters already knew the rules from the show. So I knew the reader needed to get caught up and it, and it was probably best if they did it in a way where like Cole wasn't stopping to say things that he already knew. Because um, Cole's like the one who's way more into the show. Deary like opens the book basically being like, Everyone's really into the show. I don't like it. It's, I'm very annoyed by everybody. Um, I kind of wish the show would go away, and then immediately his life, and it, then immediately his life becomes the show. I knew we, like the, the docu series stuff seemed like a good way to sort of impart sort of enough of a vibe about like who Mr. Sandwin was, sort of what the MO was, what are the basics, what are we talking about, and then. The the more important thing, like emotionally, what did it do to the community? So like Mr. Salmon was huge in the 70s in his local community of um, San Diego. And then this is in, in Arizona. So it's, it's, it's even more confusing. Like, is this the old guy or not? What was kind of neat to, to do about this was when you start killing lonely people. And if you're lonely, if you've been dumped or if you're pining over someone and that gets you killed. Then it started this just rash of people getting together and people who really wanted to break up, who should have broken up, staying together. And then that led to, they had to get married and then they had kids together. Like like it's, it is this, it's a bit metaphorical because it's sort of this fear of loneliness, this fear of death, um, the fear, like loneliness is death, this fear of this loneliness death that causes people to stay in bad situations to pair up with people who are not just, you know, exactly. And they don't realize that you can be with someone and you could be lonelier than you ever were when you were single. And it's a big thesis of the of the book. Because I like to say, um, this is, I, you know, not really a spoiler here, but I like this because I do like to, to say this enough because I knew this was going to be an anti- romance book because uh everyone by the you know everyone at the end of this book ends up either single or dead. (laughs) yep like no relationship survives this book either through death or through a breakup this is definitely and then and and then for a lot of the single folks maybe happily so this is not necessarily a uh an indictment on single equals uh uh, loneliness
0: right it's a really important look at happiness and uh, mm-hmm. what what makes the most sense for you. Yeah. Now, you have mentioned it but you were writing this while you were selling surrender your sons. Yeah. What is it like to see this coming out into the world quite a few years later? 5 years.
1: Um I was, this was 20 2018 madness and 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 surrender your sons took about about the same time, maybe a year or so longer. Oh wow. So these two books, these two thrillers just forever taking forever to find their way out um and then both uh, in my opinion just being so it by the time we get out like like both in the in their proper form um it, it's 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 wild and this didn't even really go through that many iterations it just it just got caught up in a lot of traffic because serenity your sons had to come out um and then i ended up writing 99 um, boyfriends of micah summers first um because just the way the schedule was working like it just seemed like that was going to be the next best one while i waited to see what i was going to do with 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 this next thriller and uh yeah so it's just it's just been it's it, they've been with me forever it's very um it's my third book out and it it's always i always just get so sweetly melancholic because it's just like i'm uh, you know
0: you're like never letting say, it know in the never, world
1: I know because I'm just like, I have to, I've been writing these kids forever and I, I'm, I'm, I love writing them so much. And now, um, now they have to go off and, and I'm not going to be writing them ever again. Uh, never say never, but you know, but, um, you know, I'm not in charge of a lot of that, but it, yeah, it's for, for, all, for as much as I can tell, this is the end of the road for, for, for me and these kids. And it's a very, um, tough thing to say out loud just you know yeah because i love them so they are so real to me.
0: it is tough to hear that like right each here having all of your books be standalone because i think of the relationship that i as a reader when i've read all of them just kind of going like would i love more of them yes but also i i feel like i end with that that like melancholy as well where i'm like I know I'm not going to get any more, but I'm really happy for what I got. <laughs> I know,
1: I know it's, that is the, it's, it's always so sad finishing, it's like, it's, but like, that's the thing. It's like they can always be revisited, um, and 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 that rampant is, rereader. <laughs> a, a good, a good. I'm same, 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 same. And so I do encourage people to do that. But yeah, the, but like, but honestly, like when I but closing the door on some of them helps me get ready for for the next ones who who I love as well. So. You know, it just, it gives me more time with the next book.
0: So on that, uh, you've put two thrillers out into the world and a romance. What yes. can you talk about are you working on currently?
1: Mm. So just finished copy edits on my fourth book, which is coming out July 16th, 2024. So very soon, 10 months from now, very soon. <laughs> very soon. Very <laughs> together, Very soon. I'll be <laughs> I'll be back here, probably talking to you very soon. I'll be like, yep. I'll huh, just stay on the Zoom.
0: Yeah, just keep it open in the background.
1: Right. Um, so it's called Cursed Boys and Broken Hearts. This is a companion novel set in the world of Nine Man Boyfriends and Micah Summers. It's not a sequel. Um, it just is um it's sort of a, a sort of expansion of that world.
0: This is where I can say I may or may not have heard something about that. Uh, after we stopped recording this time last year
1: (laughs) yes that's very true (laughs) you did hear about this so this has been long in the works but now it is a finished book um because I think probably the last time I was um still drafting it because it was um this this one had to be drafted very rapidly um and I was very lucky that this one kind of just shot out of me like fully formed uh, and this one is, um, so we're 99 Boyfriends is a Cinderella remix from the Prince's point of view. This is a Beauty and the Beast remix from the Beast's point of view. And this follows the character Grant Rossi, who is a fashion designer we met in the first book. Um, he is feeling extremely unlucky in love and depressed about it. And um, So much of the beast of the the being the beast stuff comes out in this in grant's depression and self hatred. this is sort of the 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 vessel with which i'm sort of telling that part of the story and uh grant is in chicago and uh just wallowing he's he's just finished uh, he just finished he just graduated high school and um he doesn't have his college plan set up yet he's supposed to um and then just time got away and he has just been kind of becoming unmoored um, uh, from life because he's feeling very cursed uh, because just so many guys in a row uh, you know he's the starter boyfriend and he seems cursed to be uh, the starter boyfriend for a lot of people before they get with their quote real boyfriend uh, and, they, and before they re- before they come to their senses and realize grant has to go and uh, it's become a pattern for him so he's he's he. He's, Grant is a sort of magical thinking type guy who notices patterns everywhere and really believes in, in, in like in, in them. And to his own detriment, he believes that like this curse is very real. And so his mom convinces him to at least get out of the house, uh, go you know take the train three hours into the country, go to the family bed and breakfast and winery, which has been in the family since uh, World War II. It's called Verrosetto. And is this, uh, uh, they have their own family label called the Wishing Rose. It's all very like rose imagery there to begin to be stuff. And um, he gets there. And so he used to spend, when he was growing up, he used to spend every summer there with his siblings and cousins. And he even had um, a, a best friend who lived in town uh, there that he would see every summer named Ben. And over the years, uh, Grant realized like, oh, he really had it, like, he was really in love with Ben. And uh, then that one summer when he was 13, it ended very horribly. They had a huge fight and they never spoke again. And it happened um, right when Grant's uh, uh, grandmother passed away. Um, So at that point, and she was running Bureau Rosetto. And so when she passed, um, a lot of the family sort of stopped coming. She was sort of the glue that held the family together. And sort of that, that sort of was sort of the great and, and no one returned uh, to Vera Lissetto. So many years, uh, five years have passed. And Grant's aunt, uh, Aunt Ro, um, she's been running the place, and she's just completely underwater. Like the things that, like the, the 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 house is in disrepair, very beauty and the beast. Like it's like, oh, the, the West Wing. Um and it's oh, this whole like dilapidated, glorious manner. Um, and so Grant comes there and his Aunt Roe is is like, well, you know, you know. Please, I'm so glad you're here. It's so good to have you back again. Would you please? Like, we're probably gonna lose. We're gonna lose this house if, um, if if we can't get you know guests to start coming back, and uh, we need to have uh, you know we need to do a lot of these repairs. Can you help with the repairs? And he's like, all right, fine. And she's like, great. Um, I can only hire one person on the staff. I've got this gardener. He's got to, he's got to handle the grounds, and you handle and you work with him. And he's like, fine, fine, fine. He goes out to meet the gardener, and it is. Ben, his childhood crush, who devastated him, began his curse, and he's all grown up, and he's looking very good, and he's very furious about it, Um, and so kind of what ensues is it's, I call it a hate fest, because enemies to lovers is not intense enough, um, because they hate each other, so it is, um, I say Beauty and the Beast, and we're granted the Beast, but also, like, Ben is also the Beast, so it's like a Beast. the beast like it's like it's it's very it's
0: just hatred
1: uh, no that's the you know that's that's the line from the first chapter of the book it's like uh you know uh who better to love a beast than another beast bells are out this year so oh
0: what a perfect first line
1: (laughs) the dark-sided book the very dark-sided energy but it's romance but it's like a gothic romance everyone is well i love it because like grant is just it's probably a lot of me in it because like it's just very in love with the And uh, we all relate to that. He's in love with his own drama, and unfortunately, we can relate.
0: Unfortunately, usually too <laughs> real. Well, I can't wait for that, and then I'm hoping you also have another thriller in the tank as well. <laughs>
1: um, nothing to announce just yet, but we're, we're it's cooking, we're working.
0: Oh, I love it! I love that. I get uh, I I get everything I need. I get a thriller, follow it up with a romance, and you know. I'm, yeah. I'm into this pattern.
1: <laughs> it's it's great. I mean, I didn't mean to plan it this way, where I'm kind of doing one on one off. But you know, I feel like the thrillers have like these like friendships that are strong romances, and then I have these romances that are um, extremely suspenseful. Um, yes. Where, yeah, just so. Um,
0: <laughs> You've kind of blended them at the same time. Yeah, it's all kind of. It's all kind of from the same world. Yeah. I love it. Well, Adam, thank you so much for coming back and for talking about Your Lonely Nights Are Over. Oh, please. My pleasure. Well, listeners, remember uh, Your Lonely Nights Are Over is already out. So go and get you a copy and enjoy Deary and Cole. Thank you all so much for joining us and happy reading. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on overdrive.com or in Libby. Our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen Podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer and Joe Skelly and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com.